Okay. In the last uh, several classes, we've been talking about the westernization of uh, Russia. Kind of, kind of most uh, famously under uh, Peter the Great, which took place kind of uh, his starting in 1700, and then his uh, his niece Sophia was violent, uh, let's say, persecution of the church and restriction of the Orthodox Church, uh, destruction of monasteries, um, the execution of many church people, and uh, the uh, reorganization of education and the of, of the Russian Church from uh, Orthodox Byzantine sources to Polish Latin sources and the implementation of the uh, Latin school system. Uh, Peter's uh, subjugation of the Church to to the control of the government was modeled on uh, what was going on in the Lutheran countries, and then. Under him and his his uh, successors, the over procurators that were in control of the church uh, were not even Orthodox. Usually, they were often uh, Lutherans, or in the case later of uh, Catherine the Great, uh, of atheists would be put in charge of of running the church in place of the bishops. Which uh, in the Orthodox system we have the the bishops, and we also have then the synod of bishops that meets for but. That synod of bishops was replaced by something called the Holy Synod, but the Holy Synod was actually a um, not the synod of bishops as we would understand it, but was a um, department of the government which did include uh, sometimes some bishops, but was actually um, not a canonical group at all, but was a, um, a governmental institution. This uh, Period of persecution, okay, running down to Catherine the Second, or in the secular history, it's Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. But uh, from the Orthodox point of view, there, uh, you know, they're both persecutors of the Church. <coughs> she died in I think 1796. Is that the way you're seen in popular Russian history? Uh, the they're they're really seen as both. I mean, there's a kind of sense that you know, in terms of the power of the country, or uh, they're seen as as having accomplished things, and and also, you know, within Russia there were these uh, strong leaders, you know, like Peter and uh, Ivan the Terrible, and later Stalin, who uh, you know really were terrible dictators, and <laughs> but they but they are um, in some ways there's an admiration, I guess, for the things that they accomplish, you know. So uh, it's an ambivalent uh, view of them from the, from the point of view of Russia. I think from the point of view of the church, we would say it's not ambivalent. We just think it's, you know, they're bad. Um, but uh, this, so this 18th century, of course, is the time of the uh, Enlightenment, emergence of rationalism, and uh, Catherine, I mean, Peter sort of identified himself with with the Protestant uh, uh, countries of Western Europe, Holland and, and Germany. Catherine with uh, the French Enlightenment and the uh, the rationalists that led up to the French Revolution. <clears throat> the French Revolution was 
uh, was kind of a turning point in one way that uh, that shocked uh, European society because of its excesses and made the 19th century somewhat uh, more friendly to Christianity. So there was a kind of, let's just say, a reaction that uh, was not exactly a return to the Christianity that was before, but at least was uh, more open. In some ways, in some ways, the 19th century uh, was a very good century for for Christianity and and for Orthodoxy, and that there was a revival. Actually, will be a tremendous revival by the end of the 19th century in Russia. But this uh, revival has its roots in the 18th century, just as in uh, the West there was, uh, coincidentally, the the Great Awakening um, going on in the 1700s, early 1700s, with uh, John Wesley and uh, George Whitfield. Uh, there, in in kind of response to the official church's uh, kind of scholasticism and the and the uh, you know rise of, of secularism and unbelief within the official church there was a kind of response in the same way in Russia as the official church became uh, scholastic and and also uh, dominated by people who did not believe in the te- teachings of the church there was a search for alternatives, and part of this search led to Mount Athos and to the uh, monastic uh, centers of, of the East, and, and uh, led to a, a spiritual revival, kind of, in a way, a, somewhat underground, uh, that, but kind of not on the level of the hierarchy, but on the, but on the level of individuals. One of the the most important of these people was uh, Paisi Velichkovsky, who is actually living during this this period up here, and he was a, a seminary and was unhappy with the the Latin education that they were receiving. They were being educated in the Latin classics, not not in uh, Greek patristic writings. So he went away to Greece. And went to Mount Athos, and um, on Mount Athos at that time, there was a revival of interest in the uh, church fathers going on there too, by uh, someone. So these people are Greek, and I'll mention is uh, Nicodemus the Hagiarite, and uh, Macarius of Corinth, a bishop who sponsored him. Nicodemus was the one who collected together the various writings on prayer by the fathers, which we know of as the Philokalia. And this is just one of the volumes. There's four volumes of this that's uh, been reprinted now by Faber and Faber in English, <coughs> New English translation. There were a couple of uh, older books of, that are selections from the Philokalia that are still, I think, quite a bit cheaper for the amount you get. But... Uh, now, well, this is in paperback, so that's okay, not too bad. But the um, so this they created this 
uh, Philokalia, which actually is named uh, after the collection of uh, the uh, Cappadocian fathers, Basil and Gregory of Nazianzus. Basil great and great, had made a collection of the spiritual writings of Origen, which they called the Philokalia. And uh, Nicodemus called his collection that as well, but it was of, of all these various fathers, uh, of, of many of them, including uh, Gregory Palamas, Maximus Confessor, uh, Anthony the Great, and so on. This was published in just uh, okay by in 1782, and at the time when Paisi was down in Mount Athos studying, and he decided that this was a very would be a very valuable uh, thing to have, so he made it his project to translate this into Russian. And so that's uh, what he did, and, and it was uh, translated to Russian and then published in Russia back in uh, well, let's see, 1793, so 11 years later. And this became, actually it was one of the few spiritual works by Orthodox, of Orthodox patristic works that was allowed to be published during this whole time period. There was a restrictions on, um, the czars had put uh, restrictions on the publication of spiritual books. And um, at the time when this was printed, mostly what was allowed to be printed was Western uh, books. They were, And so it was kind of a, uh, a real novelty to have something coming from the Orthodox tradition other than service books. There, there were service books were allowed to be printed. But uh, it became extremely popular and affected many, I mean, it such effect, affected the spiritual life of the, not only the monasteries, but of many of people in Russia and ultimately kind of led to the spiritual revival of the Russian church in the second half of the 19th century. Um, Another book I didn't bring with me. Do you have a copy of The Way of the Pilgrim? Yeah. That's um, a little bit later, but I just want to say it's a... I don't know if you have... How many, how many of you have read The Way of the Pilgrim? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. That That's um, written by somebody who lived, as far as I know, about mid-19th century, and he went out and bought the the, the Philoclea, which his uh, the spiritual father, the stars, had you know been reading, and that they had... Now you know this. This became kind of like a, a handbook for monastics and for people interested in the spiritual life. And he bought this, and then he the, the story is about him traveling around Russia reading this book, and then ultimately he ends up on Mount Athos, and that's where um, at the Russian monastery there, in the, which is uh, Saint Pantelaimon's, was where the text was found. But yeah, so there's a copy of it, uh, I guess, right over there. This edition they call the Pilgrim's Tale. But okay, similar. yeah. So that. But uh, if you've read that, you you realize the tremendous significance of the Philokalia in 19th century Russia. They, one of the things that it does is it puts ordinary people in because it's in Russian. You see, which that means that because the liturgy is not in Russian, it's in Slavonic. The Bible's in Slavonic. There's, it's one of the few uh, spiritual books actually in Russian that could be easily read. The 
so it puts Russian people in contact with the spiritual literature of the Orthodox Church, the, of the patristic literature. It's one of the only contacts they have with it. And it revives this hesychastic uh, method of prayer, but not just kind of for a particular method of breathing and so on, but the, the kind of essence of what this is about, which is not just a monastic uh, thing, but it's the idea of the, the uh, union with God as the center of, of, of uh, Christian life. And this is what comes about uh, through Paisi Velichkovsky is kind of brought back into the uh, Russian life. Now, it's also true that, you know, despite all the damage up here, there is a sense in which, you know, orthodoxy didn't just die out, you know, like a candle going out in 1700. There were still people in these monasteries who were being persecuted. <clears throat> so to some extent, there's a, there is a continuity with the earlier, uh, you know, Byzantine monastic heritage that came into Russia, um, you know, particularly under St. Sergius of Radonezh and the uh, monks of the northern seabed going into Siberia and so on. But, uh, and, and you can sort of see this like it's contemporary with Paisi would be Tikhon of Zadonsk, who embraces sort of this new turn back to these um, patristic texts, but, and he's actually even before the Philokalias itself is, is published, but one of the interesting things with him is that you have this kind of combination of the revival in interest in traditional Orthodox monasticism and an, a Western education. A lot of his, uh, you know, sources, inspirations are coming from the Western stuff that he was learning in in the schools and he was uh, I think he was teaching at the one of the seminaries so he was completely involved with that and that's I guess it's a good thing to remember that uh, you know salvation is not dependent or orthodoxy is not dependent on um, on ignorance of what everybody else is doing I mean that being being exposed to the West doesn't make a person heretical by itself. Uh, so, say, Tikhon was able, you know, even not even just knew about the West, but even kind of makes use of Western sources, but still maintains an Orthodox perspective. Um, and this is, in some ways, I guess, you know, kind of the, the benefit that perhaps could come from the Westernization is that Orthodox people were f forced to um, to deal with the West if in the case where the places where the West was the only education that people were receiving, the effect was a certain Latinization in outlook. But the goal would be to, not the goal certainly of Peter and Catherine, because that's what they wanted. They didn't want to have, they didn't really want orthodoxy to survive as orthodoxy. But but in the 19th century, the, the synthesis you get is... Um, you ha when you have the revival of interest in the Orthodox Fathers, is the ability to sort of know the Orthodox faith, and then, because of this West period of Westernization, to be able to explain that Orthodox faith to the Western world. And that's what happened with the, uh, uh, in the late 19th century, the kind of rise of, of uh, Russian scholarship, and then the diaspora, 
with with the revolution that you had this orthodox world now having to be part of the western world and to have to transmit orthodox um, theology and orthodox tradition to an alien environment but that environment fortunately such was not so alien because in some because of the western education that was the benefit of it the um, there's a couple of things I Oh, other one person I wanted to mention as an example, Saint Tikhon a, a little earlier, but then kind of in the full as this um, revival comes about, um, Saint Seraphim of Sarov is, is and um, Saint Herman of Alaska. Sorry, my writing is not uh, too neat, but are good examples of this new. Uh, emphasis on um, communion with God and the kind of seeking for a personal uh, personal relationship with God as the center of Christian life. So with Saint Seraphim, uh, who was the son of a of a builder, and uh, Saint Herman up in Valam, they incorporated this kind of uh, tradition of personal prayer and personal sanctification. To, so where they now, uh, you had kind of, let's say, somewhat ordinary people, you know, in a way, they're not, they're, neither one was a bishop. I mean, St. Herman was never even a priest. Um, and they just lived, they didn't go off either. Well, St. Herman goes to Alaska, but when he goes to Alaska, he lives on this little island and just kind of lives there. You know, he doesn't travel around or anything. But because they trans. Uh, figure their own life through communion with God by kind of uh, manifesting the kingdom of God on earth to other people. That in itself uh, leads to the conversion and and salvation of many people by making the kingdom of God evident. That's so. It's not. Uh, you know, some some somehow through uh, later we'll have you know the translators a lot of great things that get done, but uh, in Alaska, you know, the St. Herman is the is the saint that every, the Alaska natives all know him, you know, even though there were many, St. Innocent did a lot of things, but, you know, he's not really that well known in their village traditions. But the strange thing is because St. Herman, well, where he, he didn't go anywhere, he just lived in this little lagoon over there, and he prayed, and, and yet um, the impression that he made on those people you know, it's kind of come down, you know, for over 100 years, almost 200 years. So the uh, what St. Seraphim and St. Herman are kind of manifesting is this uh, return to the emphasis on the personal sanctification um, as kind of the goal of the, of the church and, and also then the inspiration, just like in the time of the St. Anthony the Great and uh the early fathers, the desert fathers, you know, were were an inspiration to the people because they were manifesting the kingdom of God in their lives on earth. And in the, in the beginning of the 19th century, when these people lived, the late 18th, early 19th century, uh, they were both doing that. And it's part of now, in a sense, the, the, the uh, spiritual re- revival of, of uh, the church and kind of its uh, its new... Its new authority in a in a in a you know a century of 
church of government persecution of the church, when the church reemerges, it's not with the support of the government. I mean, actually, uh, the church remained under government control and to a certain extent government persecution right down almost to the rev revolution. Um, the, but the authority that the church now uh, kind of gains within Russia is a spiritual authority based on sanctity rather than on government uh, support. And that begins this kind of great uh, transformation of, of Russian of Russia and kind of the emergence of uh, you know a kind of image of the Holy Russia and, and the, uh, the spiritual Russia as a sort of spiritual center that occurs in the 19th century. The uh, other place that um, I mentioned in connection with this is Optina which uh, in the 1820s that was uh, founded by uh, well like Valam uh, Sarov and Valam and Optina were uh, three places where you had disciples of St. Uh, Paisi going to but um, Optina you know was was near Russia was near Moscow and it had a lot of influence on Russian in intellectuals so you at a time you know when the church was the church structure hierarchy was still kind of under the control of the government, the secular intellectuals were able to go to places like Optina and see the monastics there and be converted. And so you had a conversion uh, from within of the society. An example of this would be uh, Dostoevsky, and he wrote uh, the Brothers Karamazov. Any of you read that? <coughs> no, that's good to read, if, uh, unabridged version, because they, they bridge out all the good parts and just leave you with a murder mystery but uh but that uh although it's a fiction you know the it's not it's not uh exaccurate but he's but the kind of inspiration for his uh, elder zosima and the the monastery is uh optima monastery and uh, elder um, ambrosius i think was the one he was uh, thinking of, although he changes some things to, you know, because it's a novel and these people are alive, so he didn't want to, he wasn't writing a saint's life or something. But he's a, one example, Dostoevsky, there's also others that um, were secular lay people who turned to the church through the influence of these and began um, the transformation of Russian society you know, in kind of reaction to what the emperor, the emperors had tried to transform Russian society, I mean, and to some extent succeeded in turning it into a secular Western society. But um, this monastic revival, again, turns the society, one portion of the society at least, back, uh, or gives the society as a whole a sort of spiritual alternative to the West. And at this time, what has happened in the 19th century is a kind of um, a split within Russia between the, the westernizers, which are continuing sort of czarist policy, and what's in, on the level of the secular the lay people was called the Slavophile movement. The Slavophile movement, of course, contains the many things that are not exactly, you know, synonymous with orthodoxy, but not everybody who was a Slavile, everything they wrote, but it was kind of a, let's say, a parallel movement of trying to um, 
react to the decision that Peter made, which was that Russia was kind of worth as Russia as it was 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 worthless, and we need to just you know follow the West. The Slavophile movement was a realization within the society itself, not just within the church, that Russia had a spiritual heritage and value that was um, that was important, and that even you know that not only that Russians needed, but that the world needed, and so there was a turning back into Russian history, a uh, revival of interest in that, and, and, and revival of interest in the, in the Byzantine heritage and the Christian uh, Orthodox patristic heritage. And this has uh, led to uh, a kind of uh, a renaissance of, uh, in the church, the, what we call the sort of patristic revival. And this manifests uh, today, but also in, at the time, in a revival in uh, Orthodox scholarship, kind of in parallel to uh, the monastic uh, revival, there was a revival in missions. Part of this, uh, of course, was the you know Russian Empire extending, and, and uh, Saint Herman was part of this going over. But also here um, in trying to reach non-Orthodox peoples and an interest in translation. So we had, uh, in Alaska, we had uh, St. Innocent, but if, and then you also had others, uh, it's uh, Macarius, Archimedes Macarius, who was translating in the uh, Altai Mountains. And in Kazan, in 1840, you had the, uh, I think it was 40, around 40, somewhere, the uh, founding of the Missionary Institute in uh, Kazan, which particularly tra- taught the idea of tr- of translating the uh, scriptures and other spiritual books and services into the languages of these uh, nomadic peoples. So during that time, uh, between the establishment of, of that and the uh, end of the thing, I think they translated into 22 uh, Siberian languages. And uh, St. Innocent, who lived was in, in Alaska in the 1820s and 30s, he was making translations into Aleut uh, and Clinket Indian, and then later, when he was uh, became the met- he became the Metropolitan of Moscow. You had um, he was supporting uh, missionary work among the uh, peoples of the Soviet far what well Russian Far East at that time, uh, the Kamchatka and uh, the area along the borders of China. <coughs> so. This uh, spiritual revival ends up in a tremendous uh, missionary revival, which not was not just because uh, Ivan the Terrible, you know, had begun the conquest of of uh, Siberia, but conquering territory is not the same as converting people. And what we uh, have here in the 19th century is the uh, the, if, the interest in in making the effort to translate. Uh, books into the languages of all these foreign people so that they could become Christians. And then the spiritual example of saintly people going to live among them. Uh, I think Leskov wrote a book. Uh, I don't know if you have it. Uh, ooh, what's it called? It's about missionaries, missionaries in, in uh, Siberia. Yeah, yeah. And there's two priests and one, you know, is kind of handing out presents, you know, everywhere to 
get, and he's you know kind of. Uh, and then the other one is just this pious monk who doesn't really do anything, but but in the end, you know, the place where he was, they become Christians and they remain Christians because of his example. Uh, so you have this combination. I mean, such as the case of you had Saint Herman and then Saint Saint Innocent doing the translations. Uh, along with others who came later, um, actually Saint uh, Yaakov Nesvetov was a uh, Aleut priest who helped Saint Innocent with his Aleut translations, and then went up into the Eskimo areas and began translating the services into Eskimo. So it's just um, you know kind of a wonderful. Is that the book? Yes. What's it called? On the edge of the world. Yes, that's about it's a it's a novel, but it's about this uh, this time period and these these missions among the among the Siberian natives. They, uh, <coughs> when they <coughs> um, <coughs> when Janet and I went to uh, California to go to Fort Ross, mm-hmm. we went out there uh, intentionally to find about find out about Orthodoxy in America and things like that. There mm-hmm. wasn't an awful lot known. The curator didn't even know who Peter the Alute was, uh-huh. but but she was kind enough to go back and get all of her stuff and bring it out. And sure enough, there he is. And uh, the whole thing about his about the Inquisition into his death and, and mm. all of that stuff is all at Fort Ross. It's very interesting. But uh, but I always wondered how come the American Indians who were in that area it never took in that part of the world. Well, it took in Alaska, but right. it never took in America. Just for the simple reason that uh, the Russians were at Fort Ross for a very short time, right. and the Spanish controlled that area, and they, um, well, as Peter the Aleut, I mean, they when the Aleut Christians came, they, you know, arrested them all and took them and, and tortured them to try to convert them to Catholicism. So well, that's not exactly what happened. That's, but, the, that's well, sort of what everybody thinks. Yeah. But, uh, and they and they were there long enough and had interface with the American Indian, but. That Orthodoxy never took. I don't know if it's. I don't. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Well, how? I mean, it didn't seem like they were there that long. But how long did they? They were there that long. Yeah. I mean, they were there long enough, and they had free reign of it. You know, the Spaniards came up as far as San Francisco, and that's where he got captured. They had. Yeah. They sent an expedition. I won't get off onto that, but anyway, I always wondered why that. Why that? Yeah. Hey, it took it took so well in Alaska, but America. Well. um... I guess I just always thought it was lack of opportunity. I mean, yeah, the may, may the um, the Russians themselves may have gotten to Fort Ross, but I mean, was was there any uh, any of the mis- did any of the missionaries or priests get down to Fort Ross to work among the natives there? That's uh, yeah. Well, I think it was more of an economic outpost. Yeah. They had a church and stuff like that, but I don't think that. Yeah, I didn't. Probably well, himself was at Fort Ross. Did he go to Fort Ross? Oh yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, he was. I've been there, and, and uh, you can see the. Uh, <coughs> you know, he was a naturalist, and you can yeah. see the uh, the lab where he worked on his experiments with plants and so mm-hmm. forth. Uh-huh. It bore off. Yeah. How uh, long was he there? Well, I think a few years. Really? Uh-huh. I thought I I didn't know that. Uh, he was. Because uh-huh. uh, there there's a church there which is still um, you know, yeah. north of still there. Yeah. And, uh, when I was there, they had uh, a huge exhibition in the museum uh, at Fort Ross about St. Innocent. You know, uh-huh. Several rooms full of uh, really? of uh, yeah. pictures and, and uh, 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 
different objects from his life and so forth. Yeah, the, I don't know. I never, I never had heard about him being there. We hear about his uh, time in Sitka and the time out on the Aleutians, but, yeah, uh, but uh, I know about that. So, yeah. Well, no, I don't know why. Then, yeah, well, well, it's interesting. Anyway, the, uh, um, just to kind of pick up kind of what was going on. Uh, well, hmm, one of the, I guess. One of the other aspects of the of these translations into um, into the different uh, native languages was that there was an interest <laughs> in translating into Russian uh, because so actually back at Saint Tikhon of, of Zdansk um, was doing translations from the Testament into Russian and uh, Metropolitan Filaret uh, Moscow when he was actually worked on the translation of a Russian Bible in the 1820s. And but uh, this kind of went back and forth. There was, uh, you know, many people who were saying, well, you know, so we're translating for all the native people, and so they can all read, but uh, but the people in Russia cannot <laughs> can't read the Bible, and they can't they don't really have it, they can't really understand the services, and um, you know, shouldn't we translate into Russian? But this, in a certain sense, it's a combination of the this hierarchical structure that that the um, Western emperors, the Westernizing czars had imp- implemented, that there was not a lot of freedom within the Orthodox Church to do things, and the government um, kept a very strict control. And so, it, I'll go through what happened at this time. But it, there was um, there was one point uh, Alexander the First was was uh, in favor of it, but then the uh, they turned away he turned away from it, and so it was not allowed. And then finally, under Alexander II, around the time of uh, our civil war, is when finally the Russian Bible was released uh, for pub for study, you know, in in Russia. But uh, but the uh, there were many people who were worried about the effect of people being able to read the Bible, actually, that was, uh, and they, they felt that, because you know, that, I guess because they had this, you know, they were all worried about the church, so they had this strict government control of the church through the Holy Synod and the over-procurator, they didn't want to have, you know, just ordinary people being able to study and uh, and to kind of question the structure that was being imposed from above, so... Um, in many ways, uh, you know, when you get to the end of the Russian uh, Tsarist period, you know, and the uh, read the uh, responses of the bishops, you know, with the, the reforms that were wanted was to allow, you know, more spiritual freedom. Um, that's to, partly to have access to the uh, the scriptures, the liturgy, and the uh, texts of the fathers in, in their own language, so that people would uh, be able to to learn but it just it didn't really happen very much yes when did the, when did the old believers show up in here there uh quite a bit before there before peter oh really yeah with um uh alexi uh romanov he um was interested in trying to retake the ukraine and also to lib- possibly liberate the byzantine empire uh, from the turks 
So he wanted Russian church services to conform to Greek church services. So they changed, basically used the uh, modern Greek services books that were being printed in Italy and the uh, Polish service books that were being printed, uh, the Ukrainian service books being printed in, Ukraine, in, the, in Poland to rewrite the Russian service books. And the a lot of people in the Russian church didn't like that because they felt that these two places were, you know, under Western influence and that uh, the services were, you know, going to be corrupted by doing that. The the explanation that was given by uh, Nikon was that, oh, well, we're correcting the books based on ancient sources, but that's completely false, actually. The the uh, the books that the, the services that Nikon put in were just what was current in Greece at the time. The reason Greek services now, or even our own, are different from Russian services, is because in the 19th century there was a um, a major abbreviation of the services done in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. So that's what that's what we have. But the uh, the current Russian service is the um, Greek service from the 1600s, and the old believer service is just reflecting Russian probably would be earlier, earlier medieval, earlier Byzantine service. Um, some of the things like the the two or three uh, fingers on the cross that was there was a apocryphal work uh, advocating that that was accepted during the time of Ivan the Terrible, and that's why Russians started using two fingers for a while, and then it was uh, discontinued, except for the old believers. Is there any, is there any basic uh, theological difference between the old believers and... Well, now there is. Uh, there's several. One is that the old believers are, you know, I think pretty kind of legalistic in the way they look at things. Um, the second was that the strict old believers saw the change in the services as the end of the you know end of the world that this was the end the, that the since all the bishops had gone over to the new to the czar uh, that and the well the czar's the czar's defection itself was the sign of kind of the for them of the end of the kingdom of god on earth and then the lack of bishops meant that there were not going to be any more priests in the old believer the strict old believer group. So that to them meant that the uh, as part of the end of the world that, that sacramental grace had been removed from this earth uh, pending the last judgment, you know, kind of. So that's uh, yes. Weren't they aware that the Orthodox Church existed elsewhere in the world? Um, well, but remember in the time of Ivan the Terrible there was the, before, I mean, part of the problem was that they had felt that the Greeks uh, and you know, Ukrainians, you know, well, the Greeks, but the Greeks had compromised, in, you know, in the Council of Florence, and they, uh, and then with the Ukrainians, of course, there was the, this was the time of Peter Mogila and the Polish influence, so they really saw Russia as the last bastion of Orthodoxy, and then the changes in the services meant that Russia had finally sold out, so they, uh, yeah, they, they sort of saw the end, and now, of course, there's there's uh, old believers that still kind of get priests over from the Orthodox Church 
kind of illogically, you know, keeps <laughs> as long as we could keep converting priests, then you know we still have sacraments. But uh, but anyway, that was that's the so it's a kind of apocalyptic theology that we don't have, obviously. But there's and there's there's big old believer communities in the United. There's a couple of them that right, and and part of them have come back. You, the Erie uh, group has come back into the Orthodox Church. Oh, they have. Yeah, and I think in Russia too, there's some that have come back. But uh, yeah, but old believer sentiment was pretty widespread actually in in Russia. You no, know, they were very heavily persecuted by yeah. by these uh, czars. Yeah. Okay, I just want to, um, I guess, kind of dick you up politically. Sort of what's happening uh, after Catherine. You had uh, Alexander, who was also somewhat liberal and initially was friendly with Napoleon, but then when Napoleon attacked him, uh, he became disenchanted with liberal political ideas and things, and so he uh, became interested in, in spiritual things, and he had uh, he proposed, um, what's it called, uh, I, think I, sorry, I wrote it down someplace, the... Uh, yeah. Was it called the Holy Alliance uh, after the defeat of Napoleon? And he had the idea of a revival of, you know, a kind of spiritual religion that he that would. Um, and this was taught by you know one major branch of Freemasonry, which is was that kind of the main inspiration for his uh, theological objectives, which was that the the churches. The Christian church, different Christian churches, preserve were kind of a primitive form of spirituality, and so um, he wanted was leading to kind of this new religion of the future that would surpass all of the church various denominations and would lead to an ultimate spiritual uh, Christian church. And so he promoted uh, people who would be in favor, you know, supported that into the. Uh, the Galitzin, I think at this time, Chris Galitzin was the over procurator. A lot of the, a lot of Freemasons were put in charge of schools and and uh, departments, and they combined. He combined the uh, Holy Synod with the Department of Education for, I think, some kind of Department of Spiritual pr- Improvement to uh, to bring about this transformation to the new level, but. Um, after his uh, and and also during his time he uh, there was the alliance with the British Bible Society so you had the um, the Russian Bible Society and this is when actually the problem i guess the problem was that the initial work in producing a Russian Bible was done under the auspices of this Bible Society movement which the emperor supported but it was very closely connected with the British Bible Society and also very you know really led by um People, the, the people, the Freemasons, so that when um, after Alexander, there was a, the Decemberist uh, plot after his death. Um, the reaction against, let's say, the uh, the Freemasons and the British is part of why the Russian Bible, you know, move, the translation movement was was uh, hurt because it was seen as a kind of foreign plot, you know. So they just decided not to, that they had to preserve Slavonic for a while anyway, that uh, during the time of Nicholas, which was a, so a reaction against Alexander. 
<coughs> but um, so the Freemasons were involved with the British. Well, they yes, they did, but they're I mean, although separate, I mean, a lot of people in the in the British Bale Society were Methodists. They weren't they weren't necessarily Freemasons, but in Russia, now Freemasonry has two branches. So there was also the atheistic branch that was also in Russia, but um, the amazing, the side that Alexander liked was the um, this kind of spiritual religion, and this what's amazing is the amount of uh, influence that that these groups had and you know the number of uh church officials that were part of part of these uh, lodges and and how and their influence in all the you know, upper positions now what, what years are, what year is this? he um he died in 1825 1801 to 1825 this is also the time of the uh, greek Revo revolution when they broke free from the ottoman empire of course with british help uh, although the British help were not interested particularly in reviving Orthodoxy, but they, you know, they actually were interested in reviving classical Greece. Uh, and if you, I don't know, for those who read Henty, there's a sort of very fun, funny Henty book about that, um, about about this attempt to revive the classic classical Greece. Uh, yes. Where is um, Saint Theophane the Recluse in all of this stuff? Uh, He's coming in a little later, and he's a um, one of the people involved, though, in in kind of trying to revive in the revival of this um, uh, patristic, you know, hesychastic spirituality. Um, with Nicholas, you have uh, a sort of reaction, uh, but you had. Metropolitan Philaret, who had been involved in the translations, you still had advocates for translation. He became becomes the uh, Metropolitan of Moscow, the head of the Russian Church, and then he, under him, he was um, kind of supporting Saint Innocent in his work in Alaska and other missionaries. And then uh, on Metropolitan Philaret's death, Saint Innocent, the translator from Alaska, becomes the next Metropolitan of Moscow, and so the missionary movement uh, continues through the middle of the 19th century. And this comes into the time of Alexander II, uh, the Liberator, 1855 to 1881, and he's the one who ended serfdom in Russia and um, also allowed, finally, a R Russian Bible to be published. This is also a uh, time of the Slavophiles and um, probably about the time of, I don't know exactly, but I think about the time when the Way of the Pilgrim is written. The uh, Alexander II, however, who was a liberal, liberalizing political life in Russia, he was exec he was assassinated by mm -hmm. the uh, radicals who wanted to prevent liberalization and were looking for a uh, sort of a, ultimately a totalitarian regime uh, and a revolution. And then that led to Nick, uh, Alexander III, who was then a reactionary and kind of more of a police state. Thing, which was that was the father of Nicholas II, who was more mild. But um, even though Nicholas, you know, generally is a somewhat positive character when you look at the czars and, as a group, uh, remember, you know, that a lot of the things that uh, that Peter had put in place really didn't, you know, end until after the fall of, of Nicholas II. Actually, in, in um, 1904, as part of there was um, some liberalization of non-Orthodox Christians, so a lot of the restrictions on Orthodox were taken out. And then 
it became kind of very noticeable that the only people who were really being restricted were Russian Orthodox. <laughs> the Orthodox Church was the restricted church, and the you know the Protestants or something could kind of do what they wanted. That's the thing. What I was saying with like, so the only people who weren't allowed to read the Bible in their own language for a long time were the Russian people, but everybody else could uh, or have service. Well, you know, services that continued to the end. Yes. Uh, just a, a question along a different line. Uh, have have there been any any theological uh, clarifications from the time of? St. Gregory Palamas until the period we're talking about, or are we mainly talking about just trying to practice, uh, practice yeah. what has already been pretty much defined? Yes, I mean, within Russia, the 19th century Russia, of course, you had a lot, um, you know, it, there comes to be um, a change in the second half. Initially, this is a, a revival of practice, and then what happens is then the, the uh, there's a, re- a the revival sort of spreads upward through the church into the uh, structure. So one of the things that happens in about the middle of the century is the language of instruction goes back from Latin to Russian, and you start to have I mean this patristic revival that enters into the educational system. So we're no longer uh, studying you know Cicero, but we're now studying church fathers. So the 19th century. So some from like uh, 1850s, 1860s, it starts to actually have, um, well, Orthodox education back in Russia. And that's really where, with the late 19th century, this whole renaissance of, uh, of patristic Orthodoxy, you know, comes about and in, in coming into the, into the 20th century. And um, I just mentioned, oh, cause, uh, Father John of Kronstadt also is another example of the... Um, of the Hesychast movement, the oh, I was mentioning with Nicholas. The thing, remember, uh, Nicholas was and his wife were very much under the influence of uh, Rasputin, who, although resembling this kind of the Starzy and everything, was himself actually not a Christian monk, but was a, uh, a spiritualist, someone more more in keeping with these uh, Freemasonry, <laughs> you know, uh, movements. So. Uh, you know, the czars never really went back to the situation of being uh, Orthodox emperors in the way that they were prior to Peter the Great. That's uh, so. Even with Nicholas, who was somewhat of a nice guy, you know, he he never he never really recovered that relationship to the church that the uh, emperors had earlier. And I guess I need to we need to stop here with the revolution and the, and. The, where I'll go from here, I have no idea. So next next time, I guess we'll, we'll find out. Any questions? Well, can you take it up to? Uh, <coughs> can you take it up to the? Uh, you know, just after the Communist Party and. Uh, I could and try. How the real core church jumps to life and. Okay. church and what what was that? I could try to take things up further. Um, you know my. My specialty is patristic, so I'm kind of stretching forward here. But I'll 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 do what I can. Yeah, but uh, gotta get to cover new ground here for me. So, uh, so anyway, I just from this period, I recommend uh, there's a book, a nice book on the life of Saint 
Seraphim of Sarov, and several, really? several nice, well, there's a lot of, several books on him, but this is one, and then there's several on Paisi Velchkovsky, and um, the Philokalia is available in English, and also the Way of the Pilgrim is too, so those are all kind of coming out of this, uh, coming out of this period. Okay. Well, thank you. Okay. <laughs> 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 you have a spiritual father and you have Christian 